0: Be sure to follow Send Me To Sleep on your preferred podcast player, so you never miss an episode and a good night's rest. Good evening. Welcome to Send Me To Sleep, the world's sleepiest podcast. I'm your host, Andrew and I'm delighted that you've joined me tonight. I'm here to help calm your mind and send you into a peaceful night's sleep. Tonight's episode is a request from a Send Me to Sleep listener, Angela. I'll be reading The Phantom of the Opera. Chapter 1, Is It the Ghost? by Gaston Leroux If you would like to make a request for the next episode, please visit sendmetosleep.com slash podcast and sign up for our free newsletter. Additionally, if you find this podcast effective, please consider subscribing so you can stay up to date with new weekly episodes and fall asleep consistently each night. This podcast is most effective when you are able to switch off from the outside world, which is why we're sponsored by Cocoon Sleep Headphones. Cocoon combines premium audio, noise cancellation, comfort-focused design, and intelligent sensors to monitor your relaxation and sleep. On average, users fall asleep 30% faster when using Cocoon headphones. To order a pair of your own, and receive a 30-day risk-free trial, please visit cocoon.io and use code SENDMETOSLEEP at checkout for an exclusive 10% discount on your purchase. All links and information are in the show notes. That's enough endorsement for this episode. So let your eyes fall heavy and your breath soften, as we settle in for a peaceful night's sleep. Prologue The opera ghost really existed. He was not, as was long believed, a creature of the imagination of the artists the superstition of the managers or a product of the absurd and impressionable brains of the young ladies of the ballet their mothers the box-keepers the cloakroom attendants or the concierge yes He existed in flesh and blood, although he assumed the complete appearance of a real phantom, that is to say, of a spectral shade. When I began to ransack the archives of the National Academy of Music, I was at once struck by the surprising coincidences between the phenomena ascribed to the ghost and the most extraordinary and fantastic tragedy that ever excited the Paris upper classes, and soon conceived the idea that this tragedy might reasonably be explained by the phenomena in question. The events do not date more than thirty years back, and it would not be difficult to find at the present day in the foyer of the ballet old men of the highest respectability, men upon whose word one could absolutely rely, who would remember as though they happened yesterday the mysterious and dramatic conditions that attended the kidnapping of Christine Dyer, the disappearance, of the Comte de Chagny and the death of his elder brother, Count Felipe, whose body was found on the bank of the lake that exists in the lower cellars of the opera on the rue Scribe side. But none of those witnesses had until that Day thought that there was any reason for connecting the more or less legendary figure of the opera ghost with the terrible story. The truth was slow to enter my mind, puzzled by an inquiry that at every moment was complicated by events which, at first sight, might be looked upon as superhuman, and more than once I was within an ace of abandoning a task in which I was exhausting myself in the hopeless pursuit of a vain image." At last I received the proof that my presentiments had not deceived me, and I was rewarded for all my efforts on the day when I acquired the certainty that the opera ghost was more than a mere shade. On that day, I had spent long hours over the memoirs of a manager, the light and frivolous work of the too sceptical Monshamin, who, during his term at the opera, understood nothing of the mysterious behavior of the ghost and who was making all of the fun of it that he could at the very moment when he became the first victim of the curious financial operation that went on inside the magic envelope. I had just left the library in despair when I met the delightful actor, manager of the National Academy, who stood chatting on a landing with a lively and well-groomed little old man, to whom he introduced me gaily. The acting manager knew all about my investigations and how eagerly and unsuccessfully, I had been trying to discover the whereabouts of the examining magistrate in the famous Shanghai case. M. Foyer, nobody knew what had become of him, alive or dead. And here he was back from Canada, where he had spent fifteen years and the first thing he had done on his return to Paris was to come to the secretarial offices at the opera and ask for a free seat. The little old man was M. Foyer himself. We spent a good part of the evening together, and he told me the whole Chagny case as he had understood it at the time. He was bound to conclude in favour of the madness of the Viscount, and the accidental death of the elder brother. For lack of evidence to the contrary, but he was nevertheless persuaded that a terrible tragedy had taken place between the two brothers in connection with Christine Daae. He could not tell me what became of Christine or the Viscount. When I mentioned the ghost, he only laughed. He had been told of the curious manifestations that seemed to point to the existence of an abnormal being residing in one of the most mysterious corners of the opera. And he knew the story of the envelope, but he had never seen anything in it worthy of his attention as magistrate in charge of the Chani case, and it was as much as he had done to listen to the evidence of a witness who appeared of his own accord and declared that he had often met the ghost. The witness was none other than the man the Persian, and who was well known to every subscriber to the opera, the magistrate took him for a visionary. I was immensely interested by this story of the Persian, I wanted, if there was still time, to find this valuable and eccentric witness. My luck began to improve, and I discovered him in his little flat in Rue de Rivoli, where he had lived since and where he died five months after my visit. I was at first inclined to be suspicious, but when the Persian had told me, with childlike candor, all that he knew about the ghost and had handed me the proofs of the ghost's existence, including the strange correspondence of Christine Daaei, to do as I pleased with, I was no longer able to doubt. No, the ghost was not a myth. I have, I know, been told that this correspondence may have been forged from first to last by a man whose imagination had certainly been fed on the most seductive tales, but fortunately I discovered some of Christine's writings outside the famous bundle of letters, and, on a comparison between the two, all my doubts were removed. I also went into the past history of the Persian and found that he was an upright man, incapable of inventing a story that might have defeated the ends of justice. This, moreover, was the opinion of the more serious people who at one time or other, were mixed up in the Chanyi case, who were friends of the Chanyi family, to whom I showed all my documents and set forth all my inferences. In this connection, I should like to print a few lines which I received from General D. Sir, I cannot urge you too strongly to publish the results of your inquiry. I remember perfectly that, a few weeks before the disappearance of that great singer, Christine Dye. And the tragedy which threw the whole of the Faubourg Saint Germain into mourning. There was a great deal of talk in the foyer of the ballet on the subject of the ghost, and I believe that it only ceased to be discussed in consequence of the latter affair that excited us all so greatly but if it be possible as after hearing you I believe to explain the tragedy through the ghost then I beg you sir To talk to us about the ghost again. Mysterious though the ghost may at first appear, he will always be more easily explained than the dismal story in which malevolent people have tried to picture two brothers killing each other who had worshipped each other all their lives. Believe me, etc. Lastly, with my bundle of papers in hand, I once more went over the ghost's vast domain. The huge building which he had made his kingdom. All that my eyes saw, all that my mind perceived, corroborated the Persian's documents precisely, and a wonderful discovery crowned my labours in a very definitive fashion. It will be remembered that, later, when digging in the substructure of the opera, before burying the phonographic records of the artist's voice, the workman laid bare a corpse, well, I was at once able to prove that this corpse was that of the opera ghost. I made the acting manager put this proof to the test with his own hand, and it is now a matter of superstition indifference to me if the papers pretend that the body was that of a victim of the commune. The wretches who were massacred under the commune in the cellars of the opera were not buried on this side, found in a spot not very far from the immense crypt which was stocked during the siege with all sorts of provisions. I came upon this track just when I was looking for the remains of the opera ghost, which I should never have discovered but for the unheard of chance described above. But we will return to the corpse and what ought to be done with it. For the present, I must conclude this very necessary introduction by thanking M. Miefroid who was the commissionary of police, called in for the first investigations after the disappearance of Christine Daae. M. Remy, the late secretary. M. Mercier, the late acting manager. M. Gabriel, the late chorus master. Madame la Baron de castellot Barbzac, who was once the little Meg of the story, and who is not ashamed of it, the most charming star of our admirable Corpse de Ballet, the eldest daughter of the worthy Madame Giry, now deceased, who had charge of the ghost's private box. All these were of the greatest assistance to me, and thanks to them I shall be able to report those hours of sheer love and terror in their smallest details before the reader’s eyes. And I should be ungrateful indeed if I omitted, while standing on the threshold of this dreadful and voracious story, to thank the present management, the opera, which has so kindly assisted me in all my inquiries and M Massager in particular, together with M Gambion, the acting manager, and that most amiable of men, the architect entrusted with the preservation of the building, who did not hesitate to lend me the works of Charles Garnier although he was almost sure that I would never return them to him. Lastly, I must pay a public tribute to the generosity of my friend and former collaborator, M. J. Lacraze, who allowed me to dip into his splendid theatrical library, and to borrow the rarest editions of books by which he set great store. Chapter One Is It The Ghost? It was the evening on which Monsieur Debinet and the Polygyny, the managers of the opera, were giving a last gala performance to mark their retirement. Suddenly, the dressing room of La Sorelli, one of the principal dancers, was invaded by half a dozen young ladies of the ballet who had come up from the stage after dancing polycute. They rushed in amid great confusion, some giving vent to forced and unnatural laughter, others to cries of terror. Sorelli, who wished to be alone for a moment to run through the speech which she was to make to the resigning managers, looked around angrily at the mad and tumultuous crowd, It was Little Jamez, the girl with the tip-tilted nose, the forget-me-not eyes, the rose-red cheeks and the lily-white neck and shoulders, who gave the explanation in a trembling voice. It's the ghost! and she locked the door. Sorelli's dressing room was fitted up with official commonplace elegance. A piet glass, a sofa, a dressing table and a cupboard or two provided the necessary furniture. On the walls hung a few engravings, relics of the mother who had known the glories of the old opera in the Rue Lepeltier, portraits of the Vestris, Gardel, Dupont, Bigotoni, But the room seemed a palace to the brats of the Corps de Ballet, who were lodged in common dressing rooms where they spent their time singing, quarrelling, snacking the dressers and hairdressers, and buying one another glasses of chassis, beer, or even rum until the callboy's bell rang. Sorelli was very superstitious. She shuddered when she heard little Jammis speak of the ghost, called her a silly little fool, and then, as she was the first to believe in ghosts in general, and the opera ghost in particular at once asked for details. Have you seen him? As plainly as I see you now, said little Jamez, whose legs were giving way beneath her, and she dropped with a moan into a chair. Thereupon, little Jeery, the girl with eyes black as slows, hair black as ink, a swarthy complexion and a poor little skin stretched over poor little bones, little Jeery added, If that's the ghost... He's very ugly. Oh yes, cried the chorus of ballet girls. And they all began to talk together. The ghost had appeared to them in the shape of a gentleman in dress clothes, who had suddenly stood before them in the passage without There, knowing where he came from, he seemed to have come straight through the wall. Pooh, said one of them, who had more or less kept her head. You see the ghosts everywhere. And it was true. For several months. There had been nothing discussed at the opera but the ghost in dress clothes who stalked about the building from top to bottom like a shadow who spoke to nobody to whom nobody dared speak and who vanished as soon as he was seen no one knowing how or where. As became a real ghost, he made no noise in walking. People began by laughing and making fun of this spectre dressed like a man of fashion or an undertaker. But the ghost legend soon swelled to enormous proportions among the corpse de ballet. All the girls pretended to have met this supernatural being more or less often, and those who laughed the loudest were not the most at ease. When he did not show himself, he betrayed his presence or his passing by accident, comic or serious, for which the general superstition held him responsible. Had anyone met with a fool or suffered a practical joke at the hands of one of the other girls, Or lost a powder puff, it was at once the fault of the ghost of the opera ghost. After all, who had seen him? You meet so many men in dress clothes at the opera who are not ghosts. But this dress suit had a peculiarity of its own. It covered a skeleton, at least so the ballet girl said, and, of course, it had a death's head. Was all this serious? The truth is that the idea of the skeleton came from the description of the ghost given by Joseph Bouquet the chief scene shifter who had really seen the ghost. He had run up against the ghost on the little staircase by the footlights which leads to the cellars. He had seen him for a second, for the ghost had fled, and to anyone who cared, to listen to him, he said. He is extraordinarily thin and his dress coat hangs on a skeleton frame. His eyes are so deep that you can hardly see the fixed pupils. You just see two big black holes." as in a dead man's skull. His skin, which is stretched across his bones like a drum head, is not white, but a nasty yellow. His nose is so little worth talking about that you can't see it side face, and the absence of that nose is a horrible thing to look at. All the hair he has is three or four long dark locks on his forehead and behind his ears. The chief scene shifter was a serious, sober, steady man, very slow at imagining things. His words were received with interest and amazement, and soon there were other people to say that they too had met a man in dress clothes with a death's head on his shoulders. Sensible men who had wind of the story began saying that Joseph Bouquet had been the victim of a joke played by one of his assistants. And then, one after the other, there came a series of incidents so curious and so inexplicable that the very shrewdest people began to feel uneasy. For instance, a fireman is a brave fellow. He fears nothing, least of all fire. Well, the fireman in question, who had gone to make a round of inspection in the cellars and who, it seemed, had ventured a little farther than usual, suddenly reappeared on the stage, pale, scared, trembling, with his eyes staring out of his head and practically fainted in the arms of the proud mother of little Germes. And why? Because he had seen coming towards him at the level of his head, but without a body attached to it, a head on fire. And, as I said, a fireman is not afraid of fire. The fireman's name was Pampin, the corpse de ballet was flung into consternation. At first sight, this fiery head in no way corresponded with Joseph Bouquet's description of the ghost, but the young ladies soon persuaded themselves that the ghost had several heads, which he changed about as he pleased, and, of course, they at once imagined that they were in the greatest danger. Once a fireman did not hesitate to faint, leaders and front row and back, Row girls alike had plenty of excuses for the fright that made them quicken their pace when passing some dark corner or ill-lighted corridor. Sorelli herself, on the day after the adventure of the fireman, placed a horseshoe on the table in front of the stage door keeper's box, which everyone who entered the opera otherwise than as a spectator must touch before setting foot on the first tread of the staircase. This horseshoe was not invented by me any more than any other part of this story, alas, and may still be seen on the table in the passage outside the stage doorkeeper's box, when you entered the opera through the court known as the Corps de l'administration. To return to the evening in question. It's the ghost, little Jammers had cried. An agonizing silence now reigned in the dressing room. Nothing was heard but the hard breathing of the girls. At last, Jammers flinging herself upon the farthest corner of the wall, with every mark of real terror on her face, whispered, listen. Everybody seemed to hear a rustling outside the door. There was no sound of footsteps. It was like light silk sliding over the panel, then it stopped. Sorelli tried to show more pluck than the others. She went up to the door and, in a quavering voice, asked, Who's there? But nobody answered. Then, feeling all eyes upon her, watching her last movement, she made an effort to show courage and said very loudly, Is there anyone behind the door? Oh, yes, yes, of course there is, cried that Little dried plum of a Meg Geary, heroically holding Sorelli back by her gauze skirt. Whatever you do, don't open the door. Oh Lord, don't open the door. But Sorelli armed with a dagger that never left her, turned the key and drew back the door, while the ballet girls retreated to the inner dressing room and Meg Geary sighed. Mother, mother! Sorelli looked into the passage bravely, It was empty, a gas flame in its glass prison cast a red and suspicious light into the surrounding darkness without succeeding in dispelling it, and the dancer slammed the door again with a deep sigh. No, she said. There is no one there Still we saw him James declared returning with timid little steps to her place beside Sorelli He must be somewhere prowling about I shan't go back to dress We had better all go down to the foyer together, at once, for the speech, and we will come up again together, and the child reverently touched the little coral finger ring which she wore as a charm against bad luck, while Sorelli, stealthily, with the tip of her pink right thumbnail, made a St. Andrew's cross on the wooden ring which adorned the fourth finger of her left hand. She said to the little ballet girls, Come, children, pull yourselves together. I dare say no one has ever seen the ghost. Yes, yes, we saw him. We saw him just now, cried the girls. He had his death's head and his dress coat, just as when he appeared to Joseph Bouquet. And Gabrielle saw him too, said Chalmers, only yesterday, yesterday afternoon in the broad daylight. Gabrielle, the chorus master, why, yes, didn't you know? and he was wearing his dress clothes in broad daylight. Who? Gabrielle? Why, no, the ghost. Certainly, Gabrielle told me so himself. That's what he knew him by. Gabrielle was in the stage manager's office, Suddenly the door opened and the Persian entered. You know the Persian has the evil eye. Oh yes, answered the little ballet girls in chorus, warding off ill luck by pointing their forefinger and little finger at the absent Persian while their second and third fingers were bent on the palm and held down by the thumb and you know how superstitious gabriel is continued jammers however he is always polite when he meets the persian he just puts his hand in his pocket and touches his keys. Well, the moment the Persian appeared in the doorway, Gabriel gave one jump from his chair to the lock of the cupboard, so as to touch iron. In doing so, he tore a whole skirt of his overcoat on a nail. Hurrying to get out of the room, he banged his forehead against a hat peg and gave himself a huge bump. Then, suddenly stepping back, he skinned his arm on the screen near the piano he tried to lean on the piano but the lid fell on his hand and crushed his fingers he rushed out of the office like a madman slipped on the staircase and came down the whole of the first flights on his back I was just passing with Mother, we picked him up, he was covered with bruises and his face was all over blood. We were frightened out of our lives, but all at once he began to thank Providence that he had got off so cheaply. Then he told us what had frightened him. He had seen the ghost behind the Persian, the ghost with the death's head, just like Joseph Bouquet's description. James had told her story ever so quickly as though the ghost were at her heels. And was quite out of breath at the finish. A silence followed, while Sorelli polished her nails in great excitement. It was broken by little Jeery, who said, Joseph Bouquet would do better to hold his tongue. Why should he hold his tongue? asked somebody. That's mother's opinion, replied Meg, lowering her voice and looking all about her as though fearing lest others ears than those present might overhear. And why is it your mother's opinion? Hush, mother says the ghost doesn't like being talked about. And why does your mother say so? Because, because, nothing. This reticence exasperated the curiosity of the young ladies who crowded round little Jeery, begging her to explain herself. They were there, side by side, leaning forward simultaneously in one movement, of entreaty and fear, communicating their terror to one another, taking a keen pleasure in feeling their blood freeze in their veins. I swore not to tell, gasped Meg, but they left her no peace and promised to keep. The secret until Meg, burning to say all she knew, began with her eyes fixed on the door. Well, it's because of the private box. What private box? The ghost's box. Has the ghost a box? Oh, do tell us, do tell us. Not so loud, said Meg. It's box five, you know. The box on the grand tier, next to the stage box on the left. Oh, nonsense. I tell you it is mother has charge of it, but you swear you won't say a word. Of course, of course. Well, that's the ghost's box. No one has had it for over a month except the ghost, and orders have been given at the box office that it must never be sold. And does the ghost really come there? Yes. Then somebody does come? Why, no, the ghost comes, but there is nobody there. The little ballet girl's exchanged glances. If the ghost came to the box, he must be seen, because he wore a dress coat and a death's head. This was what they tried to make Meg understand, but she replied, that's just it, the ghost is not seen, and he has no dress coat and no head. All that talk about his death's head and his head of fire is nonsense. There's nothing in it. You only hear him when he is in the box. Mother has never seen him, but she has heard him. Mother knows Because she gives him his program. Sorelli interfered. Jeery, child, you're getting at us. Thereupon, little Jeery began to cry. I ought to have held my tongue. If mother ever came to know, but I was quite right. Joseph Buquet had no business to talk of things that don't concern him. It will bring him bad luck. Mother was saying so last night. There was a sound of hurried and heavy footsteps in the passage and a breath voice cried Cecile Cecile are you there it's mother's voice said Jamis what's the matter she opened the door a respectable lady built on the lines of a Pomeranian grenadier Burst into the dressing room and dropped groaning into a vacant armchair. Her eyes rolled madly in her brick dust coloured face. How awful, she said. How awful. What, what? Joseph Bouquet what about him joseph bouquet is dead the room became filled with exclamations with astonished outcries with scared requests for explanations yes he was found hanging in the third floor cellar It's the ghost, little Jiri blurted, as though in spite of herself. But she at once corrected herself, with her hands pressed to her mouth. No, no, I didn't say it. I didn't say it all around her. Her panic stricken companions repeated under their breaths. Yes, it must be the ghost. Sorelli was very pale. I shall never be able to recite my speech, she said. Madame Jamis gave her opinion while she emptied a glass of liqueur that happened to be standing on a table. The ghosts must have something to do with it. The truth is that no one ever knew how Joseph Bouquet met his death. The verdict at the inquest was natural suicide. In his memoirs of manager, M. Monchamin, one of the joint managers who succeeded Monsieur Debinet and Polygier, described the incident as follows A grievous accident spoiled the little party which Monsieur Debinet and Polygier gave to celebrate their retirement. I was in the manager's office when Mercier, the acting manager, suddenly came darting in. He seemed half mad and told me that the body of a scene shifter had been found hanging in the third cellar under the stage, between a farmhouse and a scene from the Roy de Lahore. I shouted, Come and cut him down. By the time I had rushed down the staircase and the Jacob's Ladder, the man was no longer hanging from his rope. So this is an event which M. Monshamin thinks natural. A man hangs at the end of a rope. They go to cut him down. The rope has disappeared. Oh, M. Monshamen found a very simple explanation. Listen to him. It was just after the ballet, and leaders and dancing girls lost no time in taking their precautions against the evil eye. There you are, picture the corpse de ballet scuttling down the Jacob's Ladder and dividing the suicide's rope among themselves in less time than it takes to write. When, on the other hand, I think of the exact spot where the body was discovered the third cellar underneath the stage. Imagine that somebody must have been interested in seeing that the rope disappeared after it had effected its purpose, and time will show if I am wrong. The horrid news soon spread all over the opera, where Joseph Bouquet was very popular, the dressing rooms emptied and the ballet girls, crowding around Sorelli like timid sheep around their shepherdess, made for the foyer through the ill-lit passages and staircases trotting as fast as their little pink legs could carry them.